Hello, and welcome to this Biblical Education series on the book of Exodus. You can find this series and others online at onefellowshipumc.org and on the One Fellowship Church podcast. Visit us online to learn more about our congregation and the work that we do in Waco, Texas. Thank you, and enjoy. Uh, as you will recall, the, the first half of the book of Exodus, Exodus 1 through 19, is really a collection of stories about this Exodus event, the memories of this Exodus event as they are passed down and, uh, and what it means. And we oftentimes, especially in the modern world, um, we tell those stories. Uh, we tell the stories in Sunday school. If, uh, we, if you've ever been to a, um, a Passover Seder, the stories are told and passed on. But the second half of the book of Exodus sometimes gets overlooked, particularly in modern American Christianity. Because beginning in Exodus 20, we get the Ten Commandments. A lot of us are familiar with the Ten Commandments, but a lot of us are not familiar with what comes after the Ten Commandments. You see, Exodus chapter 20 through 23 is this this book of the covenant. Um, It's this collection of of the laws and... uh, a Torah, the instructions, not just how to order a life, but how to order a society around someone's life. And then in Exodus, um, you know, 25 through 40, we, we get this, uh, the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle, the house of worship for the Israelites, this mobile temple. And then we get the, the description of that construction. And in, in our modern American conception, oftentimes we, we kind of skip over some of that material. Um, we skip over some of those laws that feel so far away from us culturally, and we skip over the um, uh, sometimes the tabernacle material as well. But I want to point out how important this material is. It makes up half of the book of Exodus. And here's what it shows us, is that the first half of the book of Exodus really is a story of God delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt. But remember, God does not just deliver us into nothing, but God delivers us into something. And that's what the second half of the book of Exodus is about. It's about what God delivers the Israelites into. They are delivered into this covenant relationship with the creator of the world. And as part of that, they order their lives to reflect the values of God. The life of the people of God should reflect the values of God. They order their lives in such a way so as to cultivate worship at the very heart of the Israelite society, the very heart of the Israelite camp. And so, my friends, Exodus 20 through 40 is remarkably important, which is why, as we were talking about adjusting the schedule for Bible study, um, I felt very strongly that we should continue in the book of Exodus. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful for this day. We are so thankful for the opportunity to gather together to reflect upon your text. And what we ask for in this evening is that you will take these words and unsettle us so that we will see them in a new light. And that as we are unsettled, when we look up from the text, we will see the world around us in a new light. And I pray, Lord, that when we can see the world around us in a new light, that we will engage the world in a new way. Lord, that we can reflect your love, your compassion, your mercy, your justice, we can reflect the creator of this world all around us. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. Amen, my friends. Well, let's dive in here to the book of Exodus. And uh, the the place that I want to camp out, um, 
this evening is uh, begins in Exodus 32, and it's strange because in uh, in the book of Exodus we get uh, you know chapters 25. Um, through about uh, 30, 31 is, uh, 31 is this description of what the tabernacle should look like, how they should construct the tabernacle. It is the instructions. There are a lot of details. There is a lot of fantastic symbolism in there. And I'm going to skip over it for the moment to get to chapter 32. Because you see, in the, in the heart of Torah's description of the tabernacle. You get the description of how it should be constructed in 25 to 31, and then you get the account of its construction in um, in 35 uh, through like 39, and then kind of the, the glory of the Lord descends in chapter 40. Um, it's in the heart of this destruction or of this description of the tabernacle that we get what is remembered as one of the most egregious transgressions. In the Hebrew Bible, we sometimes call this the golden calf incident or uh, or other times as the breaking of the covenants. And I think its placement here right in the center of Torah's discussion of the tabernacle, the place of worship is remarkably symbolic. Hey, buddy. Oh, you want to read some books? Dude, I'm I'm on a live stream, man. Can, Can we read some books later? Okay, thank you. <laughs> My apologies, friends. My apologies, friends. Let's flip over to Exodus chapter 32, and I actually want to get a running head start here in verse 18. Verse 18 reads, When God finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant, the tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Now, oftentimes in our modern American conceptions, we have this sense that Moses goes up Mount Sinai and gets the tablets of stone, with, which contains the Ten Commandments, and then goes back down the mountain. But what we want to remember is that Moses doesn't just uh, hear the, the Ten Commandments up there on the mountain. He hears all these instructions about worship in the tabernacle. And after hearing all of this, now Moses gets the, uh, the, the tablets, and now Moses goes, is going to go back down the mountain. And in verse 32, okay, we're going we're gonna to snapshot here from Moses up at the top of the mountain down to the people at the foot of the mountain. Remember, Moses has been up there for a long time. And it reads in, uh, in chapter 32, verse 1, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron. And said to him, come, make gods for us who shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we did not know what has come of him. And, and I want to pause here because this is essentially the, the beginning of the story. Um, and as we often read it, <clears throat> we see this as them asking Aaron to make other gods. Okay, that, that's the way we often conceptualize it. Now, one of the difficult things here, though, is that the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, is actually plural. So when we speak of the one God, one creator God of this universe, in the Hebrew Bible, it says Elohim, it uses the plural. So we could translate that as gods. Which means when the Bible is talking about the gods of other peoples, it also uses the plural. And here's why this matters. Because that means that in this passage, we could see them as either trying to construct other gods or trying to construct an image for one God. You see, oftentimes we interpret it as 
the people want Aaron to make other gods for them to worship, different gods. But as we read the story, we're going to see that's not necessarily the case here. Let's keep reading. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears, brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them and formed a mold and a cast image, a calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And, and here's the thing. Remember, there, there's this play between the plural and the singular. Okay? Are they talking about multiple gods or are they talking about a singular god? And remember, since the Hebrew word for God, for god is plural, Elohim, we could translate it either way. Um, they could be talking about making multiple gods. They could be talking about making one god. But here's what I want to point out. How many calves do they make? Only one, which makes me think that a better way to translate this might be instead of these are your gods, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Well, who's the God that brought them up out of the land of Egypt? The Lord, the creator of this world. So are they trying to make a different God that they can worship? Or are they trying to give an image to the God who has already delivered them. Keep reading. Verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation, saying, Tomorrow shall be a festival to, and catch this, to who? To the Lord. You see, my friends, the sin, the, the transgression that takes place here at Mount Sinai is not that they were trying to worship a different God. It's not that they were trying to worship multiple gods. It's not that they were trying to put a different God before the Lord. It was that they were trying to create an image for the Lord. They were this, this was still a festival to the Lord. This was still worshiping the Lord. They were just trying to do it through an image, something they could see. Remember, the Lord was unseen. You, you, you had these theophanies that signaled the presence of God, but the Lord still remains unseen. Moses, uh, the, the, the one who is speaking to God now, has been gone for so long. And so they create something that they can see. And that, my friends, is a little bit different than we oftentimes conceptualize it. And that can also hit really close to home. Because how often is it that we create transgressions just because we want to see Calves in the ancient world are very common. Uh, in ancient worship, um, ac across sort of the, the Eastern Mediterranean, the ancient Mesopotamian uh, world. Um, and calves were oftentimes represent representations of God, but it does not, or of gods, but it does not mean that they were themselves gods. Uh, so there are some instances in which the calves um, appear to reflect rather like a, like a footstool for the gods or like a pedestal that held the gods up. And so there's this question when we read this text, when they make a calf, are they trying to say this calf is the Lord? Or are they trying to say this calf represents uh, the presence or contains the presence of the Lord? Those are two different things. But in both cases, it's still a transgression. Remember, back in Exodus chapter 20, uh, it, it not only says not to have other gods before the Lord, it also says not to make graven images. Remember, because God has already endowed this world with God's image. Humanity, you and I, reflect the image of God inside of this world. And so there's no need to create another image to reflect it. Let's, 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 let's keep going here. <clears throat> We're in verse 6. So they rose early. The next day, 
They offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to rebel. Verse 7. Now we're back up on Mount Sinai with the Lord and Moses. The Lord said to Moses, go down at once. Your people, listen to that, your people. God's no longer calling them God's people. God doesn't say my people. Remember earlier in the book of Exodus, that's part of of what made the covenant so special was God shows up and God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. And now here, it's like God's completely disowned them. Go down, your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, or this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them. And of you I will make a great nation. Think about that. God is essentially saying... uh, Leave me alone so that I can consume this whole people and I'll restart with you, Moses. Now, here's the thing. That that language of the the wrath, burning, hot, uh, consuming, that language shows up elsewhere in the Bible. And and you've probably guessed, uh, it generally is not a good day when that happens. Um, This language usually shows up around around the imagery of plagues, punitive plagues. We get it in Numbers 11. uh, We get it in Numbers um, 16. We get it in Numbers 25. Uh, several other places in Torah where this kind of language shows up to signal that a plague is coming. And uh, we're going to see there's other plague imagery throughout this story. And it's, it's fascinating to think that we just came from a story in which God delivers the Israelites by way of what we sometimes call signs or wonders, um, or we often label them plagues. And now here, the people themselves are now the ones transgressing, the ones facing this prospect of plagues. <clears throat> But here's, here's, here's the, the, the problem. Once again, the transgression is not that they're worshiping different gods. It's how they're worshiping the Lord. It's that they're trying to create this image. This image that somehow contains the Lord. That somehow signals the presence of the Lord is here and here now. And that's one of the challenges uh, when we read the Bible. One of the challenges we face of understanding God Because at what point can you contain God? At what point can you define this is where God is and this is where God isn't? Um, At what point can you say this uh, this here is where the presence of God is and is nowhere else? That's the thing. God is always moving beyond the realm of our perception, beyond what we can conceive. That's what you see in the book of uh, Acts, for example. You know, in the, in the book of Acts, the, the apostles go to, um, they go to the temple, the place where you expect to find the presence of God. Nothing really happens there. Where's the presence of God moving? All throughout the land, all amongst the people, right? And, and the, the, the apostles are just trying to keep up. It's the thing. You can't really contain the presence of God, can you? That's part of what makes the presence of God so beautiful in this text. It's also part of what makes it so frightening sometimes. It's something that's so hard to define. The Lord essentially says, okay, I'm going to hit the reset button on this whole covenant thing. 
and watch what Moses does. Remember, we, we've spoken in the past about the role of a prophet. And we oftentimes think of a prophet as someone who speaks to the people on behalf of God. But that is not the only role of a prophet in the Hebrew Bible. In this Hebrew uh, conception that we have here, the prophet not only speaks to the people on behalf of God, the prophet also speaks to God on behalf of the people. You see this in many instances. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Amos, Amos chapter 7, for example. And so we see this here. Verse 11, but Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it is with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath. Change your mind. Do not bring disaster on your people. Let me pause for a second. Notice what Moses is doing here. He's saying, God, turn from, turn from this wrath. Imagine how this would look. But then look at what else Moses, um, Moses invokes. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, who you swore to them by your own self. Throughout the, uh, the, the following verses, what Moses does is he reminds God about the covenant he had made to the ancestors. He reminds God about the promise that he had made, the promise that he made um, to, to give them descendants that will inherit the land forever. And notice what happens in verse 14. The Lord changed his mind. Now, it's a, a fascinating thing to think about. There, there are uh, a few passages in the Hebrew Bible where it talks about God changing God's mind. Um, and, and it's, it's sometimes uh, rather foreign in our kind of modern conceptions. I think this is a lot more at home in an ancient Hebrew worldview than it would be in our modern conceptions. But uh, the, the, the Lord changes uh, his mind a few times, occurs a few times throughout the Hebrew Bible. And in every case, here's one thing that's consistent. In every case, the Lord always changes God's mind for mercy. In every case. The Lord pronounces something, but then changes his mind for mercy. It's a consistent thing that we find. In this case, what is it that convinces the Lord to change, uh, to, to change his mind on this matter? It's, it's this promise of the covenant that he had made. You know, and it shows uh, the, the power of the covenant throughout the biblical text, really. Verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain carrying the two tablets of the covenant in his hands. Tablets that were written on both sides, written on the front and on the back. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved upon the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, remember Joshua was about halfway up the mountain with him. Hey, I hear you, buddy. Thank you so much. <laughs> Can you go bring that to mommy, please? Thank you, buddy. Love you. Remember, Moses is up on the mountain. Joshua, his aide, is, is uh, about partway up the mountain. So when Moses uh, meets back up with Joshua, Joshua says he, hear, or, um, he says he hears the noise of war in the camp. And, and Moses listens and he says, well, this isn't the sound of victory. It's not the sound of defeat. This is the sound of revelry. And as soon, in verse 19, as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets from his hands and broke them on the floor of the mountain. 
And then there, there's this really strange detail that shows up here. Okay, so Moses throws down the, the tablets, they break. Verse 20, he took the calf that they had made, burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and then makes them drink it. Have you all ever noticed this detail in the text? Makes them drink it. This is... Um, This likely reflects, uh, or, or we suspect probably reflects, a, um, a sort of trial by ordeal ritual. So, so it sounds very foreign to our modern ears. It sounds like a detail that if we're not careful, we, we might miss. But we actually see a similar ritual elsewhere in Torah. We get this as well in uh, Numbers chapter 5, verse 16 through 28. This idea of you take something, uh, grind it down, and drink it, and somehow it enters into you and becomes a witness, either a witness for you or a witness against you. You see, and so here they are, they've committed this huge transgression, and so now by having all of them drink it, it becomes a part of who they are, and it now bears witness from them. Now, here's what we see from Numbers 5, though, is that uh, in Numbers 5, the, the individual who drinks it, if they are innocent, nothing happens, right? Be because their, their spirit is pure, uh, well, not their spirit, I should say, there, there's this sense of, uh, of um, purity and genuineness on the inside. That, that's what this ritual kind of gets at, is what's on the inside, um, but if they are guilty, then a plague falls upon them from, from the inside out, so to speak. And so what this ritual does is it's designed to sort of uncover things that are hidden within the human heart. You, you take this, this symbol of a transgression within yourself, and if you're, if you're innocent on the inside, it, it does no harm. But if, if you're not innocent on the inside, then it does bring harm. And so it looks like what Moses is having them do is to drink this very transgression. And those who have transgressed, those who are guilty, the implication is that something will come to them. That it will cause problems for them from the inside. The inside out. But for those who are innocent, it won't. Because on the inside, there's only innocence. And we see that reflected elsewhere in this story here. That, uh, that there is this sense that a plague of some sort is going to fall upon those who have transgressed in this way. When Moses saw, we're, we're in verse 25 now, when Moses saw that the people were running wild for Aaron and let them run wild to the derision of their enemies. I love that little parenthetical note in there. Uh, verse 26, then Moses uh, stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And, and I want to intentionally read these next few verses here because I think when we tell this story, oftentimes we skip them. And, and I do not want to skip them. These verses contain uh, remarkable violence that I don't think we should separate from the story. Mo Moses says, who's on the Lord's side? The sons of Levi, the Levites come. And he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you. Go back and forth from gate to gate throughout the camp. Each of you kill your brother, your friend and your neighbor. Verse 28, the sons of Levi did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 of the people fell on that day. Why do I want to be sure that we get these few verses in here. Because oftentimes when we tell these stories, we select what parts of the stories to tell. 
And when we select what parts of the stories to tell, we oftentimes select the parts of the stories that uh, they either you know support our theology, they support our conception of God, they support the way that we view the world or for some for some reason or another. And the passages that make us uh, more uncomfortable, we oftentimes skip over. And that includes passages of remarkable violence in the Bible. The Bible was produced by a remarkably violent world. Um, and it speaks to a remarkably violent world. Violent, violence is everywhere in here. And that's, that's one of the things that makes it so challenging to interpret today, especially uh, as Christians, as, as people who come to it looking to find um, God in some way directing us, guiding us, shaping us through these words. The problem when we, pick in, or when we uh, skip over the passages that make us uncomfortable is that uh, we could end up with a slightly misinformed view of the breadth of the story, of what all it says. There's a lot of violence in the Bible. Um, I, I often hear people talk about uh, the Bible is a, a love letter uh, written from God to us. Um, and I've, I've heard that many, many times in, in sort of evangelical American Christianity. And I understand what it intends to teach, you know, uh, about um, how the Bible is, is a way for God to communicate to us and that it communicates God's love, all things that I very much affirm and, and, and believe and proclaim. Um, but when we say the Bible is a love letter written to us, you know, we, we have to skim over all of these parts that make it so problematic. And I actually think that there's a problem with us doing that. You see, <clears throat> the violent passages, the, the passages that don't sit well with us, um, in, in many cases, I think those are also valuable as we reflect, as we read the text. I definitely do not believe that this text in any way should ever be used to endorse violence even though the Bible oftentimes has been used in that way. But I think that by reading these passages and by wrestling with how uncomfortable they make us, it forces us to wrestle with the concept of violence and the way that violence functions in society and in the world around us. And as we wrestle with it, when we encounter it in the text, it shapes the way that we conceptualize our world, the way that we view it within our world. And that then shapes the lens that we can use when we look up from the text to the world around us. Because if we're honest, we still live in a world filled with violence. When I look at this passage, it deeply, deeply troubles me. And I think when I look up from this passage, it should continue to deeply, deeply trouble me wherever I see it. I actually think there are many places in the Bible where the presence of violence is designed to trouble us. It is designed to make us look and to say the world should not be operating this way. You take the book of Judges, for example. I think the book of Judges is a prime example. There's a lot of violence in Judges. And I think by the time uh, that Judges is written in such a way so that by the time you get to the end, we should all be saying the world should not be working this way. This is not right. Let's keep reading here. Verse 30. On the next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. 
So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold or a god of gold, however we want to translate that. But now, if you will only forgive their sins, but if not, blot me out of the book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. And uh, notice that whoever has sinned, that's the one that gets blotted out. And that goes back to that, uh, that trial by ordeal ritual when Moses has them all uh, drink the, the water with sort of the dust of this idol. Those who are innocent, nothing happens. Those who are guilty, there is this sort of, a, this, this sort of ominous sense hanging over them that it is now a part of them and that it will come back upon them. Verse 34, but now go lead the people to the place about which I spoke to you. See, my angel shall go in front of you. Nevertheless, when the day comes for punishment, I will punish them for their sin. Verse 35, and, and this is where I think we're justified in seeing that ritual as being tied to a plague in some way. Um, then the Lord sent the plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. I want us to take this story and contrast it with what we see in the very next chapter, chapter 33. Um, in, in chapter 33, uh, once again, we have, um, you know, they're, they're still at Mount Sinai, but we, we get a different picture of Moses. Recall that this is all happening in the middle of the discussion of the presentation of the tabernacle. That's their heart of worship. That's, that's the official place of worship for the Israelites. And right in the middle, we get this story of what in, in the biblical tradition is remembered as being the most egregious sin they commit. And one, I, I think there's, there's something really powerful for us to reflect upon in there. That sometimes at the heart of, uh, of what we consider the most sacred is also where we can find human darkness. But I want us to look at, at this picture at Cast of Moses now here. Verse 7, 33 verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Didn't it just say that? Here's the thing. When, when the Bible starts repeating things, when you start seeing things repeated in the text, highlight that, underline it. Always uh, take note of it. When Moses went out to the tent, verse 8, all the people would rise and stand, each of them, at the entrance of their tents. They would watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. Then uh, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. Notice that, that the text emphasizes this is outside the camp. And, and here's why I think this matters is because the tabernacle is supposed to be at the heart of the camp. It's supposed to be at the center of the camp. And so here at the center of the instructions about the central house of worship in the center of the Israelite camp, we have a story about the, the central prophet in the Hebrew tradition going outside to encounter God going away from the camp to encounter God, going away from the center of all of, of the official worship religion, however you want to describe it, getting out alone with God. And there's that balance 
that, that we try to strike in our own spirituality oftentimes. We, we, we want to come to church uh, to, to encounter God, you know, the official place of worship uh, where we are around a lot of other people who, who worship according to the same customs and beliefs that we do, the, the same social structures, so to speak. But sometimes it's getting away from all of that that we need to really encounter God, to speak with God. And, and so in our own spirituality, oftentimes we find ourselves in this tension between trying to draw near to, to the central place of worship where all the people come to worship to encounter God there. But then sometimes we find ourselves needing to draw away from that, away from everything in order to encounter God. We're caught in that tension. Just like what we see here in this text. Fascinating thing to think about in the era of COVID-19 when we all are forced away from the physical house of worship that we love so much. Verse 9, oh, verse 10. Um, when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they would rise, they would bow down, all of them, at the entrance of their tents. When the people saw Moses and go into the tent and the presence of God descend, it caused them all to worship each in their own tents, each in their own homes, each in their own spaces. The official building of worship is never the only place for worship. I'll say that again. The official building for worship is never the only place for worship. Verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And, and we need to pause here to, to just gaze upon that language for a second. Because remember what we've encountered so much throughout this story. Uh, throughout Genesis and Exodus, there is this tradition, this theme. You can't look on the face of God and live. We see people who encounter God are afraid that they're going to see the face of God. Um, because there's this sense, you can't look on the face of God and live. God is too different. He's too much. God is too holy in that sense. And now here we get this, this phrase here in verse 11, that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. Which is strange, because we're going to see just a few verses later, Moses is going to ask to see God's glory, and God's going to say, you can't see my face. We're, we're, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, see, you have said to me, bring up the people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Think about that. Think about that. Okay? Moses saying, if I have found favor in your sight, just show me your ways. Y'all remember back in, in, in the first uh, lesson on the book of Exodus, we, we, uh, we talked about Torah and what Torah means. And in Christianity, we often translate Torah as law, but that's not really the best translation for it. Torah is not so much law. Torah really is instruction. And stories can instruct us. Uh, guidelines can instruct us. Law can instruct us. Stone tablets can instruct us. Instructions for worship, all of that. That's what Torah is. It's instructions for life. And that's exactly what Moses is asking for here. If I found favor in your sight, just show me 
your ways. Verse 14. He said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. So, Lord, if, if your presence isn't going with us, don't send us. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way, we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. What is it that makes them distinct? The presence of God. What is it that sets them apart? The presence of God. And, and in biblical language, the, uh, being set apart, that's what we call holy. What is it that makes someone holy? The presence of God. The Lord said to Moses, verse 17, I will do the very thing that you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, show me your glory. And there's this, this famous line, it, it becomes, you know, catchphrases in a, in a lot of Christian circles. But I want us to pause to, to think about what that means, to actually ask to, to, uh, to encounter God's glory. You see, uh, sometimes in our modern Christian conceptions, we, we may have this, this sort of imaginative sense of what glory is. And sometimes we think about, uh, you know, things that are um, magnificent, wondrous, uh, you know, almost uh, spectacular in some sense, shiny, sparkly. I don't know how, how we would phrase it. But it's, all, it's one, of those lang- one of those terms that we use in Christianity a lot, that we use in the church a lot. And sometimes we don't pause to think about what that term actually means. The word glory, kavod, it means like weightiness or significance. You see, it's, it's not glorious like, like uh, you know, beautiful in the sense of beauty alone. It's glorious in the sense of something that is so, um, so substantive, weighty, huge, that it cannot go unnoticed. Think about like the sun. The sun, we would say, is glorious. Why? Because it is so massive and huge that look at all these planets that are just caught up into its orbit. Cannot escape it. How significant its presence, its, its, its very mass is. You know, we can speak of the, the earth as a whole as, as being very weighty, significant. It has its own gravitational pull. You've got the, the moon pulled around it. It's, it's massive. That's what that, that sense of glory contains in it. It's weighty. It's heavy. It's significant. God, show me your significance. God, show me your weightiness. God, show me how substantive you are here. So God says to Moses, verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, or the name, the Lord. And remember, uh, whenever you see in, in the Bible the word Lord written in all capital letters, uh, that is actually the name of God in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and in, in many Hebrew reading traditions, that name is so holy it does not pass upon uh, your lips as a reader. And so in many Hebrew reading traditions, if you come across the name, you either say Adonai, my Lord, or you say Hashem, the name. And so that's why in many of our English translations, it's going to say, Lord, in all capital letters. It's the name of God. God is going to pass before Moses and show him all his goodness and show or, and proclaim 
God's name. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy with whom I will show mercy. But he said, and get this in verse 20, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see my face and live. And here's the thing I want to point out about this. Just a few verses earlier, it says that God spoke to Moses face to face like a friend. And, and that's so striking in light of this broader tradition in the Bible that, that you can't see God face to face. And now here we come in this same chapter. One verse it says he spoke to Moses face to face like a friend. Another verse he says, um, the, the text says, uh, you cannot see the Lord's face. And on the one hand, I, I love seeing uh, tensions like this in the text. One, because it, it forces us to go back and read closer. You know, when, whenever we see difficulties like this in the text, things that either rub us the wrong way, things that stand out as, as uh, incongruent or something like that, that is an invitation for us to dig deeper. That is an invitation oftentimes for us to think uh, more about that, to not skip over those details lightly. And oftentimes what, what I really appreciate is the ways in which the biblical text sometimes can tease out depth and nuance by way of, of paradoxes, by giving us two sides of a story or two sides of a conception of a relationship with God. Because, you know, we even see this in, in our modern sort of uh, Christian conception of our relationship with God. We oftentimes speak of our relationship with God in very personal, uh, very personal terms, very personal language. Um, much like or, or not unlike verse 11 where it says that Moses spoke with God face to face like a friend. We talk about having a personal relationship with God all the time. But at the same time, when we start thinking about what that means, we reflect that God is so much different than any personal relationship we have ever had. That relating to God is so different than relating to any person that we have ever encountered. And so in that sense, we can't say that it's personal in the sense that we would conceptualize in this world. And so we find ourselves in that both-and situation. Yes, we proclaim a personal relationship, but also, no, because God is something so much bigger than what we can conceptualize. God is always bigger than our words can communicate. And so that means that even when I relate to God in a way that, that, that is so personal, resonating within my own heart, that... Even in those moments, there's so much more of God that I'm not seeing, that, that I'm not yet connecting to. Both and. So anyways, when I, I love catching details like that in the text. The Lord continued, um, and this is in verse 21, the Lord continued, See, there is a place by me where you shall stand in the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed away. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses was able to just catch a glimpse of the back of God, of, of the, the, the tail end of the presence of God moving past him. And I want to skip down to verse 34, or to chapter 34 here, down to the end of chapter 34. In, in chapter 34, uh, you get sort of this, this remaking of the covenants. And down in, uh, 
In verse 39, I want us to see the way that it characterizes Moses. The, the same Moses who both speaks to God like a friend and yet cannot see God face to face. The same Moses who asks to see God's glory and uh, is told, you can only really see my back. And, and I want us to, to, uh, to see how he's characterized here at the end in um, chapter 34, verse 29. Moses came down from Mount Sinai. As he came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant, okay, these are the remade tablets in his hand, Moses did not know that the, the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face was shining and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation uh, returned to him. Then Moses spoke with them, verse 32, afterwards all the Israelites came near, that he gave them the commandments, all the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. And get this, verse 34, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take that veil off until he came out. And when he came out, he told the Israelites what had been commanded. The Israelites would see the face of Moses that, skin, that the skin on his face was shining and Moses would put the veil back on. Moses. One verse says he can speak to God face to face like a friend. Another verse says, oh, you, you can never really see the face of God. And now here, Moses is the one who's covering his face. Moses, just after being in the presence of God, is shining, is radiating with it. And notice that when the story begins... Okay, we're, we're going to see how these stories connect here. And, and it, when the story begins, Moses goes out to the tent of meeting and all the people would watch. And when he'd go in, the, the, the presence of God would just descend on it. And then all the people would worship wherever they were. And now here at the end, Moses is coming out of the presence of God and all the people are watching. And they're seeing this radiance off of him from the presence of God. And that's one of the, the fascinating things about the presence of God in these stories. It's one of the fascinating things about um, being touched by holiness in, in some parts of Torah. It's contagious. It goes with you. It radiates off of you wherever you go. You think about that. The Moses who said, God, I just want to know your ways. And now here by the end of the story... The evidence of God's presence is just radiating off of him everywhere he goes. My friends, sometimes I think some of the loudest ways in which the presence of God radiates off of us is in how we live in this world around us. My friends, we're going to pause here for this evening at the end of chapter 34. Chapters 32 through 34 stand right at the heart of uh, the Torah's description of the tabernacle, the heart of Israelite worship as conceptualized in Torah. And right in the middle of that, we have both one of the most egregious transgressions in, in the biblical tradition, as well as the restoration of the covenant, as well as one of the most personal and intimate uh, descriptions of God's interaction with Moses in Torah. My friends, I hope that through this, you have found words that have breathed life into you. I hope that through this, you have found words that have opened up blessings before you. And I hope that through this, 
that uh, as you go forth into the world, that your words will bring life to those around you, that you will be a continual source of blessing to those around you, that the very presence of the divine will radiate off of you through your every word and through your every action. My friends, I will ask you, please join us again uh, next week um, for Wednesday evening Bible study at 6.30. If you are interested in joining us on our Zoom meeting, uh, Zoom Bible study in two weeks with Reverend Spike Burt on Romans chapter 8, please send me an email address and I will be sure that you get uh, the necessary information. My friends, may you go forth from here in peace. May you go forth from here in love. May you go forth from here in the power of the presence of God. Amen.